0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners joins us later in the show with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, Joining us as he always does every Monday is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, as well as uh, Russia's uh, and international unmanned system. Sam, uh, welcome back and hope you and yours had a terrific weekend. Thanks so much, Vago. And
1: I hope you had a good weekend as well. Uh,
0: we did indeed. Uh, we are we are back in battery, uh, as, as uh, the saying goes. And before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles, making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, Sam, uh, the headlines today are that uh, Vladimir Putin met with Wagner Group CEO and aborted mutineer Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, five days after the aborted uh, mutiny. Everybody's been wondering, you know, whatever happened to Prigozhin, is he alive? Is he dead? Where is he? His plane was moving around between Minsk and St. Petersburg and Moscow all of these times. Um, And now it turns out that Prigozhin, along with uh, 35 people, including top commanders from Wagner uh, and the military, uh, met apparently for three hours at the Kremlin on June the 29th, according to the Kremlin itself. Um, Since that meeting, federal authorities have raided Prigozhin's homes and offices, uh, made a big show of it, you know, humiliate, you know, trying to humiliate him. Oh, look at the luxury he was living in, as if all the other oligarchs are living in somehow poverty. (laughs) Putin's apartments in the Kremlin, including his billion-dollar dacha in uh, Sochi, right? I mean, let's just be realistic about this. That said, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, what do we know and what do you make of what it is we know so far?
1: Well, we knew there would be some kind of government response. Obviously, Putin and the Kremlin had to respond to the insurrection one way or another. So there would have to be uh, some kind of uh, internal investigation. And clearly, because it was demonstrated that not all Wagner forces joined this insurrection, um, I think there they there had to be some kind of investigation into actually what transpired. It's interesting that this meeting took place five days after and not before um it's interesting that other uh, top commanders were also present at the meeting uh uh, actually made it a point as he marched um, out of uh, Ukraine into um into Rostov that he met with his commanders and they decided that this was the best course of action so clearly there were other people who contributed to this decision and Putin probably had to face them as well. This wasn't a public meeting, but this was a meeting with the president uh, after everything concluded, right? After the control was reestablished, after the country was once again united in whatever form that means. And the Russian president faced Prigozhin and those who challenged Putin's rule. We don't know what else was said at the meeting, and I think we need to hold off on sort of jumping to conclusions. Um, The meeting lasted for three hours, and you can say a lot in three hours. You can discuss a lot of things in three hours. Publicly, the Kremlin admits that uh, Wagner's performance in Ukraine was discussed as well as the insurrection itself. So we have to ask, what does that mean for the commanders? Is there going to be clemency or pardons? Uh, are there going to be other arrangements made with different Wagner commanders and units? We know that the forces in Wagner forces in Central African Republic are not leaving. They're actually rotating in and out. They may be sent to other missions. It is unlikely that Wagner in its present form is going to be completely dismantled, considering how much of an advantage uh, Wagner PMC is to extend Russia's geopolitical influence and earn hardcore um, and, and earn... The currency, uh, international currency, uh, overseas, including in mining operations, in uh, extractive industries, and other um, and other business dealings that Wagner maintains, all over Africa and other parts of the world. So once again, uh, what's interesting here is the length of the meeting, and obviously the fact that. Um, Prigozhin wasn't there by himself. He was there with other people who contributed to the insurrection and who contributed to the course of actions that took place on June 24th and 25th.
0: The the next question, uh, Sam, is what happens to Prigozhin, Uh, right? I mean, regular Russians who just protest end up in jail uh, and the key gets thrown away. You know, Navalny and Karamurza were deemed such serious threats that they're going to you know they're in, uh, you know, steadily worse conditions uh, in a Siberian, literally the the toughest prison uh, in Russia in Siberia. Whereas Prigozhin actually killed Russian troops, or his forces killed Russian troops. They shot down uh, a command and control plane and helicopters and everything else. I mean, you know, and and in another era, you would get shot for that sort of thing, right? It didn't matter if you are a Barrier, you would get shot for for that kind of thing. So. What happens to Prigozhin, and you and I are in touch on a regular basis, you know, you've said, look, I mean, this is a guy with an enormous number of allies as well, right? So it's not that easy for Putin to just shoot this guy. So what's the power dynamic that's emerging? Because it would suggest maybe that Putin is a little bit weaker than we thought. I don't necessarily want to buy into that. But it appears that even even Putin is not somebody who can make, you know, that kind of a step. And what do we know about Souravikin? Uh, The deputy commander of the Ukraine mission and the commander of the Russian Air Force, who also hasn't been seen nor heard from at all uh, since, um, you know, I mean, and he was accused of being, you know, knowing that the plot was going to happen and didn't stop it. It appears that a lot of other people knew the plot was going to happen and didn't stop it either, by the way.
1: It's not clear where Sauravikhin is and what's going to happen to him. I actually don't have a lot of information about that, but it is a very puzzling development, considering his relatively high profile. It's also not clear what's going to happen to Prigozhin. Surely, he has a lot of allies in the Kremlin and probably elsewhere across the country. uh, But at the same time, he's the one who publicly challenged the system. And it's not that he made Russian president seem weak. He made the system seem weak. And we can uh, basically go over multiple arguments for why there was no credible military force that met Prigozhin head on uh, in late June because they were all in the front or because National Guard wasn't staffed with heavy weapons, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is Prigozhin exposed the weakness in the system. And so Russian president meeting with Prigozhin um, in private for three hours, Russian president trying to kind of do damage control is meant to restore faith and trust in the Russian system, especially the security system. There's going to be major changes to it going forward. For example, National Guard may be strengthened, other interior ministry formations may be strengthened as well. Um, there could be changes to what private military companies can do inside Russia or in Ukraine or maybe elsewhere. Um, but uh, again, lots of questions here right now and lots of unknowns because we're not necessarily hearing Other people speak about this. Other politicians who matter enough to influence the system, they're not sounding off on this. Everybody criticized the insurrection. Of course they should, and of course they had to because they are part of that system as well. Um, But we're not hearing a lot of other serious people necessarily voice uh, their concern. Um, in, in, In the meeting right after the insurrection, for example, when Putin met with his entire security cabinet, uh, Dmitry Medvedev was absent, for example, in that meeting. Uh, there were other absences in place. There's uh, lots of questions about the faith of Gerasimov right now, for example, uh, whether or not he maintains his role in Ukraine or whether uh, he does not maintain the role in Ukraine, but he maintains his title. Uh, so again, uh, it is really centered on the Kremlin once again, and this is Kremlin's way of establishing Control. They're controlling the narrative. They're controlling the news, what news leaks out and what news is made public. Uh, So obviously, people are going to talk about June 29th meeting between Putin and Prigozhin for quite a while, but this meeting already took place, you know, a a while ago and we didn't know about it. So right now, the system has to write itself. And Putin and the center of the system, however weakened or strengthened or unaffected or affected he was, he has to demonstrate that he is controlling the system. And he's still very much at the heart of it. And I think we're going to get some of these answers going forward in the next couple of days.
0: Um, Let me uh, go into a little bit of lightning uh, round. First, uh, what do we know about the progress of the war? The Ukrainians are claiming gains, uh, right? continuing to probe while still uh, keeping the mass of its uh, trained forces and heavily equipped forces uh, a little bit uh, off uh, the the battlefield. What's what's your sense on what you're picking up in terms of how uh, the war uh, is going?
1: Well, it's a slow advance. Obviously, we Discussed this for week, uh, for weeks because Russia had the time to dig in and build a lot of fortifications. In fact, these Russian defenses are quite robust, and uh, they present significant challenges to the Ukrainian military. But Ukraine is achieving uh, breakthroughs, and uh, it is achieving a slow advance. Although it's probably not. The pace of the advance that the Ukrainians were hoping for, or that many in the West were um, hoping for as well, and this is where cluster munitions come in. Uh, Ukraine needs a lot of artillery or artillery-like systems to continue pressing the Russians. And uh, there are a lot of questions, obviously, about what cluster munitions are and uh, their legality and lethality. And uh, a lot of these questions are now debated not just in the military but also in uh, civil society in the West and elsewhere. But bottom line regarding cluster munitions is that ukraine needs artillery shells and it needs um uh, it needs the force uh, structure uh, in place that can maintain its um, its advances and this is where these munitions are probably going to be most helpful again the point here is to continue pressing the russian forces to continue make it making it difficult for the Russian forces to defend their positions uh, so that they would be forced into retreat along one or several parts of the front. And so uh, I will not basically go into more detail about whether or not this is uh, a decision that's uh, sort of uh, legal or illegal. Obviously, it was already made by the United States, and we'll go with that. Uh, Again, this is what Ukraine needs at the moment, and what Ukraine needs at the moment is continuing to press press, the russian defenders who are very well dug in in many parts of the front uh
0: in uh, indeed and uh i think even the president explained uh that you know this was a very difficult decision to make but ultimately ukraine needs as much help right now as it can get and um n- you know even the m- most sophisticated military, military and militaries in the world don't have enough uh artillery shells ultimately we're all working on replenishing our stocks but even when we're replenishing our stocks, the Ukrainian use uh, rates uh, are still extraordinarily high and the United States happens to have a lot of these munitions around in part because of uh, uh, Korea. Uh, scenario. We're also one of the few nations that maintains landmines, again, because of uh, Korea scenario. And uh, in uh, the time we've got left, walk us through the latest uh, unmanned systems uh, developments on the battlefield, because um, all eyes are on all different aspects of this fight, obviously, uh, from the high-intensity fight, from an air defense standpoint, from a space standpoint. Bring us up to speed on unmanned uh, and what's interesting this week uh,
1: and what's new. Well, probably the most significant development is Ukraine and Turkey signing cooperation to produce UAVs. Uh, this discussion was in the works for quite a while. News about that actually broke last year, that Bayer wanted to build a factory in Ukraine to manufacture these UAVs. So this um, MOU basically um, solidifies the relationship between Ukraine and Turkey. Ukraine may may get much needed um, Uh, varieties of drones such as larger and heavier drones and combat drones of all kinds and turkey will uh, probably get a lot of ukrainian know-how and lessons learned from uh, ukraine's continued um, war against the russian invasion Uh, and so this is a mutually beneficial relationship that was probably in the works for quite a while it's interesting that this inches turkey a lot closer to ukraine than it did to russia for for many months turkey tried to maintain sort of uh, uh, a more or less neutral position offering drones to Ukraine at the same time cooperating with Russia um, and Ukraine as well um, on the grain deal and other aspects Um, cooperation with Russia is vital to Turkey's economy especially when it comes to tourism and uh, and other aspects but uh, the fact that both Ukraine and Turkey want to build UAVs jointly is probably a significant development for the UAV industry in general considering how quickly Turkey was able to establish itself as a major global player and considering how important Ukrainian military developments in UAVs and drones are right now uh, for not just this war, but for basically lots of other combat going forward. Uh, The key to that relationship is where these drones will be assembled. Russia indicated last year that um, if a factory like that would be built in Ukraine, it would be targeted by Russian missiles and drones. And so there's a lot of aspects about that that still have to be worked out. Other developments include increasing use. And I would probably, I probably should say the continued use of FPV drones by both sides. This is a significant development um, this year and probably going forward, both sides are scrambling to maximize the production rates Of these drones because they are one-way kamikaze expendable systems. This of course puts Ukraine slightly at a more advantage against Russia in the sense of a better relationship between the government, the industry, and the war fighters. FPV drones on the Russian side are still supplied by different volunteer efforts, which are not coordinated and don't have the industrial capacity. But their use is growing significantly, as well as Russia's military use of Landsat-3 loading munition in targeting Ukrainian artillery systems and other significant military aspects. So some of these patterns are uh, the same uh, from before and from uh, even last year, but uh, they are basically uh, growing in intensity.
0: Sam, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Uh, Hope you have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Fargo. And a quick word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors, our daily podcast, HII sponsors, our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors, our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors, our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors, our air and naval coverage. And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, uh, great to have you back on the program and hope you guys had a terrific weekend.
2: We did. Always a pleasure to be on the program, Bago.
0: Always uh, a pleasure uh, having you on. And uh, talked about the NATO summit. Obviously, all eyes are on uh, whether or not there are disagreements. I think the alliance will weather any disagreements that it's seeing now, whether about letting Ukraine in now or later, uh, or whether it's over cluster munitions, given that uh, the president has sort of explained uh, pretty clearly that we're reaching Low stocks ourselves, and so we have to do something in order to help our allies because they need as much firepower uh, as they can in this critical period before they they truly launch their their counter uh, offensive. From your standpoint, what are the interesting elements to watch in this NATO summit?
2: Well, I think you know. Look, I'm taking it with the industry perspective in mind. I think you know one is the, the vaunted two percent of GB, GDP goal. Um, you know, is that now considered a floor, <laughs> not a ceiling? And you know how many other countries are really going to come out and commit to achieving that? I know Germany made some statements last week that they expected to hit the two percent goal in 2024, um, but you know some of the smaller um, countries uh, and even some of the, the medium-sized ones, Spain, uh, Italy, you know, are below that two percent threshold. Canada is another uh, that, that's been in the news lately. So I think as much as there's a commitment to that <clears throat> and then I suppose the other thing you know and some of this is obviously gets classified in the new um, plans that are being drawn up that'll probably get approved at the uh, at the summit um you know but what <clears throat> what are the capability gaps like it's one thing to talk about the money, um, but what's the money going to be spent on um you know you could argue there are areas like tactical air defense um, logistics uh I, even though the basic question you know, are NATO forces <clears throat> large enough um, given given the prospect of what could be a very uh, uncertain future and outlook for Russia, let alone some of the other security issues that that uh, that the alliance is going to confront over the next five to ten years, um, it doesn't look like there's going to be a real headway on, sweden um you know entering the alliance uh you know over the weekend you had this announcement by turkey that that uh, erdogan was now going to look at eu <laughs> admission for turkey is another um, trade for the uh you know support of the vote for uh, his support for sweden to enter the alliance so uh, you know i suppose at some point there's a trade that's involved with the f-16s that could be sold to turkey but I'm a little less certain of that now than I was last Friday um, or over the weekend, you know, seeing this latest uh, ad of the EU admission. So you know, all in all there's a NATO innovation fund, <clears throat> you know, that's been talked about, but you know, funded it initially at a billion euros. I think the same issue is true for NATO as it is for the United States. You know, it's fine to fund this sort of innovation, but who's going to buy it at what scale? You know where's the money really going to go, and how quickly is it actually going to result in in new capability added to the alliance? So um, it's an important um, summit. I don't want to you know detract at all from that. I think it's you know as someone pointed out, I think it was a valid observation. This is really the second wartime summit that NATO has held. you know, the whole issue of Ukraine admittance that's been well covered, you know, they're still going to be in the waiting room. Um, but, you know, there there should hopefully be some symbolism about uh, moving NATO closer to accepting Ukraine as a member at some point in the future. But from an industry standpoint, you know, I think the tone will probably be broadly supportive of defense spending. Um, but, you know, it's always kind of the devils in the details, you know, how much, when and what for.
0: Um, Well, let me uh, take you to that, right? I mean, one of the reasons uh, we have to take the difficult difficult decision to give Ukraine cluster munitions is we're running low on our own ammunition stocks. And we're building and putting a program together where deliveries are going to start certainly next year. Um, And it has taken time to address a lot of the industrial components and mechanics of this uh, to allow us to sort of return to the role of the arsenal of of, uh, democracy. European nations also are investing. Rheinmetall is building up capability, BAE Systems I mean, there isn't an an ammunition maker in Europe that's not churning out uh, rounds. But ultimately, despite all the conversations we've been having, do we need to see from this summit also sort of an alliance-wide, and do you expect to see an alliance-wide munition and ammunition plant? I mean, Russia has gone to a war footing. We're trying to do this within the context and confines of, I hate to say it, business as usual. I mean, It even took the Pentagon more than a year to start issuing, or about a year to start issuing some of these contracts, uh, to start to get to start getting things rolling.
2: I mean, I think you know, pedal to the metal here. You know, uh, you know, look at look at what we were able to do during the pandemic. You know, with things like uh, respirators, you know, medical equipment, Um, and you just wonder, like, okay, why why isn't that 155 millimeter artillery shells can't be that difficult? um, an item to manufacture a quantity, uh, but I think you are running into the same impediments, you know, that you're seeing in the broader economies, both in the United States and Europe, and that is, you've got to get a workforce, you know, ready and able, um, I, I do suppose, Vago, you know, in this kind of, it's going to segue, I hope, to a conversation a second about an article that occurred in foreign affairs, but, um, you know, this, this is a, a the defense industrial base, um, you know, was really built for the kind of peacetime. And so we're seeing once again, an issue of, well, how do you surge capacity? And then the past we've surged capacity also by reaching outside of the usual uh, suspects in, in the defense contracting community. Um, you know, it's become a broader um, it's brought in other industrial partners, you know, and you, you can't tell me that there, there wouldn't be, Companies, I don't know, in the precision machining or pipe business or something, that might also have some capacity uh, to to churn out rounds. If that's where we're really going to go here, do I expect right. you know that kind of action plan coming out of the summit? I'm sure it's going to be discussed, but you know, I, I'm I'm really not expecting a, you know a ten point plan. Here's how we're going to triple you know ammunition production by by mid 2024, I, 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 if it happens, that'd be great, but I'm I'm not expecting it. And, you know, to the point on cluster munitions, you're right, um, you know, the other thing, and I think this just continues to get lost in the discussion about the U.S. provision of cluster munitions to Ukraine, two things, Ukraine is asking for these. So, you know, as much as, you know, they're making a decision, they're taking a decision, these are going to be used on their territory. So um, this isn't something like, you know, we're firing these things off in a country that, you know, or or a territory that we haven't necessarily been invited on. So I do kind of think this is a special case. And the other part that just has to be hammered home anytime mentions, oh, the U.S. is supplying uh, Ukraine with cluster munitions. The Russians have been firing these things off routinely, you know, really back to 2014 in the Donbass. So, don't tell me that this is some unique breakthrough moment. Um, you know, one side has been using these routinely and the other side hasn't and-
0: And in, indiscriminately it's worth indiscriminately. Uh, pointing out.
2: And these are, yes. And the failure rate on the, the actual um, sub munitions in the Russian artillery rounds is much higher than the the US or NATO standard rounds. So I don't see it as, as some giant escalatory action. I mean, yeah, it should create more problems for the Russian military. But at the same time, you know, if Ukraine is really running into um, some a slog in their offensive, you know, the, the quicker this thing can at least be brought to some point of conclusion, I think, the better for
0: everybody. Uh, and uh, cluster munitions, obviously. I mean, we, we've gone to a much more precision strike re- regime, even though these are uh, area uh, denial Uh, weapons, uh, ultimately. Um, Let me take you to uh, the foreign uh, affairs article uh, that you're uh, talking about. Uh, It was by uh, Michael Brenes, I believe, and if I apologize, he is uh, with the history department at Yale. And it's how America broke its war machine um, and, and why industry hasn't really been able to respond. And you... Um, we all respect uh, foreign af- uh, affairs, it's a terrific uh, magazine, uh, but you had concerns with this particular article.
2: Yeah, I take issue with some of his points. I think, you know, he, he tried to create a narrative that a lot of the problems that industry is facing today in meeting these demands of Ukraine resulted from uh, privatization of the defense sector, uh, um, you know, lower uh, government involvement and oversight. And, you know, I think it was kind of an ahistorical view of what's happened in this sector. You know, we had a munitions crisis in 1950, 1953 during the Korean War. Uh, You know, (laughs) what was much closer to World War II obviously but there are also a lot of government uh, owned facilities at that point in time. So I don't think that that's a factor, you know arguably there's been um, low investment in things like the government owned shipyards um you know the the ammunition plants the depots the arsenals you know that's not necessarily the fault of private the private sector that's really the money that should have been allocated by DOD and Congress to keep those facilities modern <laughs> and to the point that we just discussed you know this is this is an industry that's usually built for peacetime and it's a perennial problem i think uh You know, hopefully um, this does get more attention. You and I have been involved in these discussions for a couple of years now about mobilization and the need to make industry uh, have have more flex and responsiveness because this crisis in Ukraine, this conflict in Ukraine is not the only one we're likely to see. So building in that resiliency, the ability to scale up and then scale back down, but I don't think this is just a problem of, oh, we privatized all this stuff and given it to um, to, to private contractors, and, and that's why they're having the problems. You know, he talks about the consolidation of the defense industry. Yes, that's a fact of life, but that's not unusual. You know, the rest of the US economy also saw a consolidation. Look right. at how the many airlines there are, railroad companies, um, to name two sectors that um, you know, probably had as many individual companies. Um, in some of the sectors, is the same with defense. So, I don't think his solution, you know, which is basically more federal oversight, more government involvement in industry, is necessarily going to solve this. Um, you know, my my three data points would be: you've got to speed up um, acquisition times, development times. You can't have these, you know, fifty uh, month cycles between the contract and delivery. It's 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 insane. Um, right. You know, government oversight, yes, you need it. You still have to be good stewards of taxpayers' money. You have to make sure that the military gets, gets good quality products. But, you know, are there better ways to um, maybe limit or, or remove some of that layers of oversight so you speed up some of the cycle times? And the final point is I do think there is a role for the private sector in, um, in some of these depots, arsenals, logistics centers, you know, shipyards. Um, you know, the, the, the condition of the dry docks and some of the shipyards, you know, is really kind of appalling. Um, you know, is, are there private sector solutions for some of this? And I just think, I think there's, a, he raises some good points about, yeah, it is kind of broken right now, but I think, you know, his his um, assessment of what led to that, I take issue with. And, and um, you know, he's raised a point, but I, I think, Kind of the narrative you created on how we got here um,
0: is, is incorrect. Uh, in, uh, indeed. Um, we've got about a minute or so left. Um, walk us through on what the audience ought to be paying uh, attention to uh, over the course of this week. It is a
2: jam-packed week. The House takes up the National Defense Authorization Act, You have confirmation hearings in the Senate for C.Q. Brown to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then the Army Chief of Staff nominee also is going to get a hearing. Um, You have the Global Air Power Conference in London and RIOT. Uh, There are think tank events and Then obviously the NATO summit and all that's going to come out of that. So um, it's going to be a a week of late nights for me, I can tell you. And um, the Treasury outlays get reported. I think they'll probably be out on the 13th. Kongsberg, which is a Norwegian um, the defense energy company, they report, I believe, on the 11th or 12th. I, I don't have that right in front of me. But um, there those are kind of read-throughs to earnings season, which is going to start in earnest. I think the, the bulk of US uh, companies report that week of July 24th. Um, there are a couple of think tank events, I think, uh, Chatham House was doing something later today on Monday on, uh, you know, ending Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, There's a a CSBA event on precision guided weapons. So um, again, a busy week, but that's good. Uh,
0: I think Erdogan's, uh, demands are pretty uh, fanciful. Uh, and so in the negotiating process, you demand to get into the EU and exchange change for Sweden to put pressure on everybody to give you something else, right? Whether it's F-16s uh, or, or other stuff is, is how I, I meant to say that uh, after you mentioned that. Just uh, very quickly, you're also tracking uh, outlays. And looking at Kongsberg results uh, as well, uh, the uh, capable Norwegian uh, firm. walk us through just really quickly what sort of you're expecting to hear from from both of them as as you sort of gauge uh, broader strategic. Kongsberg trends.
2: will be, you know, A, you know, some of the supply network issues, you know, is Kongsberg see those getting any better? You know, how do they see the European defense markets shaping up? Um uh, you know, they own Patreon Finland. Uh, so, or they own a share of Patreon Finland. So, you know, but they're they're just kind of be the first ones. Defense outlays, I'm not terribly concerned about it. You know, I, I think they'll be up from the year ago period from an investment standpoint. You know, for better or for worse, <clears throat> a lot of these managements either had analyst meetings or met with investors at Paris Air Show. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be a fairly boring. Earnings season Vago. I think the most interesting thing is what companies say about some of these strategic um uh, movements that are underway. You know, the the sale of the ball space unit. Um, you know, there's been some stuff this isn't necessarily defense business, but affects defense contractors, L3 selling their avionics business, um Raytheon Technologies, are now RTX selling a business to Saffron. Uh it's more commercial in nature. So um, you know, finally, I think we're we're starting to see some movement
0: uh, in the in the M um, and sphere for the sector. Uh, indeed, Byron, uh, thanks very much. Hope you uh, have a great week. Look forward to having you back on again uh, on uh, Monday. And uh, I'm going to be uh, over at the Global Air Chiefs Air and Space Chiefs Conference as well as as Riyadh. So look forward to comparing notes next week. Great.
2: Safe travels, Fago.
0: Thanks very much. All the best. Take care. Cheers.